right, good morning. We have a uh, number of texts that I'd like to uh, put in front of us this morning. And so um, we will uh, look at all of those together, and then we will uh, dig into the uh, to our uh, learning together. Uh, so would you pray with me as we prepare to do that? Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this time of being gathered. Thank you that we do not follow you on our own, that we are not left to our own uh, resources and our own understandings, but that we listen to you, we recognize you in this community. Thank you for the promise that we belong not only to you, but that we belong to each other. Help us to belong well today. Help us to belong well as we listen to you, as we pay attention to what your spirit is saying and doing in us, and as we pay attention to the brothers and sisters that you have gathered around us. Help us to belong well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first text that I'd like to look at this morning is out of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not necessarily in the same order that I printed them. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, this holds out the possibility of belonging to each other and then also a picture of what it looks like to not belong well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass it on to you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. But if we examine ourselves, we will not be examined by God and judged in this way. But when we are judged and disciplined by the Lord, uh, we will not be condemned by the, by the world. So, dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. This is his point. Wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home, so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. And I'll give you some instructions about the other matters when I arrive. Wouldn't you like to know what that conversation was? All right. The next uh, text that I'd like to uh, look at with you is in Galatians. And this is Galatians 3, beginning at verse 24. <clears throat> Galatians is probably the first letter that Paul writes in the New Testament. So it's very, very early uh, in the uh, Christian world. And this is what he says. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian and teacher to lead us until Christ came. So now through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. But now that faith in Christ has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been unified with Christ in baptism 
have been made like him. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And now all of the promises that God gave to him belong to you. And then we're going to look at one final text uh, in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, not by a physical procedure. It was a spiritual procedure, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of your sins. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So uh, this morning, as Mary Beth has indicated, we are thinking together about the topic of the sacraments. And uh, we're thinking about our theology of the sacraments. And uh, this is a part of our series for this Lenten season on the basic sort of building blocks of the Christian faith. And uh, we're asking the question, what is it that we believe? What do we believe? Because we have a conviction that what we believe matters. Our theology matters. In other words, what we think about and how we think about who God is and how we think about who we are in light of who God is actually makes a difference in the world, in politics, in our lives, in our families. Our theology matters. How we think about God matters. And so the question is, what do we believe about the sacraments? What do we believe about the sacraments? A uh, number of years ago now, I was still a seminary student. And uh, as part of my uh, time in seminary, I was a uh, Navy chaplain candidate. And I did an internship at the uh, Naval Hospital in San Diego. And I remember uh, one of the highlights of that time was a uh, Roman Catholic priest who was also serving as a chaplain at the hospital at the same time. And every single weekday, uh, this priest would celebrate the Mass in the little hospital chapel. And uh, it was really a beautiful experience. And I, it was a devotional experience for me. And I would go every single day uh, to this Mass that I was available uh, and not otherwise occupied. And I would go, and in this chapel, there was a wall of windows, and uh, you could look out over Balboa Park, and there's a beautiful vista, and listening to the music, and listening to the prayers, and listening to the psalms, and listening to the reflections. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was spiritually nourishing for me uh, to participate in this Mass every single day. But when it came time for people to stand up, and go forward and get the little wafer and get the sip of wine, I always kept my seat. Or if I did go up, you know, um, you keep your hands crossed and you get a blessing. And so uh, this went on for a couple of weeks. And finally, my friend, the priest, said to me, you know, my, why is it that you're here every single year like my most faithful person ever? And why do you never take the wafer? You never take the wine? 
And I said, um, Chaplain, you know, I'm a Protestant, right? Um, and I didn't think you were allowed to give me uh, the, the, the wafer and the, and, the, and the wine. I didn't think it was legal for you to do that. And I didn't want to put you in a bad situation. And he said, listen, so let me ask you a question. And this question has shaped most of my theology about the sacraments ever since. And this is the question he said to me. He says, do you believe that somehow, in some way, Jesus is present in what we're doing? And I said, yes, of course I believe that. And he said, and then secondly, he said, let me ask you a follow-up question. He said, can you explain it? I said, no, I can't explain it. He said, wonderful, then this table is for you. You're welcome to come. And so uh, I um, sort of became uh, his most loyal participant in the Mass when he welcomed me into that mystery. And this is what he said. He said, you know, the word sacrament means mystery. The word sacrament means mystery. Uh, the, 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 when we enter into the world of the sacrament, we enter into a mystery that is beyond what our language and our logic and our thinking can grasp and describe. The sacrament isn't so much something that we understand so much as it is something that we experience. And so if you don't hear anything else today, if, the, the, if we get into the weeds here and you get lost and you get disoriented and you don't know what's happening, uh, if you were up late last night for any reason whatsoever and you drift off to sleep, let me, let me just tell you, when you wake up, remember these two things. Number one, sacrament means mystery. None of us understands it. We don't understand it. And number two, somehow, in some way, in that mystery, Jesus is present. And so the sacrament is for anybody who wants to be present with Jesus. Remember those two things, and you'll know what we believe about the sacraments. Now, our texts today allow us to go a little bit further than that. Our text today allows us to say a few more things about the sacraments, and we want to say those things, uh, but recognize it doesn't take us much beyond those two thoughts that I learned back in that naval uh, hospital chapel uh, with my friend. And so uh, what I'd like for us to see on the basis of these texts beyond, it's a mystery that we don't understand, and Jesus is present, is this. Three things. Three things. Number one, in the sacraments, God initiates. Number two, in the sacraments, something happens. And number three, in the sacraments, we respond. So God initiates. God starts it. Number two, something happens. And then we respond. That's the, that's the thrust of the sacrament. So first of all, God initiates. All Christians, it doesn't matter uh, what language you worship in, it doesn't matter what continent you're on, it doesn't matter what flavor of Christian you are, what denomination you come from, all Christians believe that at the heart of the Christian faith is a relationship. Uh, it's not fundamentally uh, a, a set of things to believe, but at the, at the heart of the Christian faith is a relationship that you get to have with the living God. And all Christians, no matter where they are, what language they speak, what their background or flavor is, what their theology is, all Christians believe that that relationship has two parts. Everybody believes this. We all think this. There's a God starting it. There's a God's part. 
And there's a human response. Like in any other relationship, in any other conversation you have, somebody initiates it and somebody responds. Somebody starts a conversation and somebody responds. There's always those sort of two beats that happen. God initiates, we respond. God calls, we answer. And all Christians believe that both of those are important. In order to have a relationship, you have to have both of those happening. In the Reformed flavor of Christianity that we stand in, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion, and I'll use those two terms interchangeably, baptism and communion are all about the God-initiates side of the relationship. Saying both sides are important, both sides are necessary, there's no relationship without both sides. But the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of baptism stand at the God's initiating side. In other branches, and other brands and flavors and traditions within the Christian family, um, for example, in the Baptist denomination or a free church tradition, the uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper tend to be more associated with the and we respond side of the relationship. And again, my good friends in the Baptist churches and the free churches would not say that God's initiative doesn't happen or isn't important. They'd say, of course it's important. It's all important. And the, and the, and the Lord's Supper and, and baptism stand kind of with the human response side. And so the, the question is, where does the emphasis go? Where do the uh, sacraments belong? And in fact, in many uh, Baptist traditions or free church uh, traditions, uh, the word sacrament uh, is not really used in uh, the term ordinance is used instead. Some of you maybe have been in uh, churches or worshiped in places or belonged to congregations where the idea was an ordinance. And if you just think about the two words, an ordinance is a rule to follow, right? If there's a local ordinance about curfews or a local ordinance about littering, uh, it's a rule that you follow. And so an ordinance is something that you're required to do. A sacrament is a mystery that you enter into. So two different terms, two different ways of thinking about what's happening in these uh, two experiences. So in an ordinance, the emphasis is on our promise to God. In the sacrament, the emphasis is on God's promise to us. In an ordinance, the emphasis is on uh, an expression of obedience. And obedience is important, and we never want to not be obedient to God. It's an expression of love to God to be obedient to him. In an ordinance, uh, uh, the emphasis then is on the Lord's Supper or baptism is an expression of our obedience to God. In a sacrament, the emphasis is on uh, the means of grace. In an ordinance, the emphasis is on um, God's past offer of grace in Jesus that calls us to present obedience. This is a tricky one, right? So in an ordinance, you're remembering God's past, present, uh, God's past offer of grace that calls us to present obedience. In a sacrament, because it's a means of grace, and we'll talk about that, we are recognizing God's present offer of grace and the call to future obedience. So some distinctions that get made. Where does the emphasis belong? On God's initiative or on human response? The text that we read in Colossians uh, is an important one in helping us to sort out that distinction. 
And again, both sides of the relationship are important. The goal is for you and I to have a relationship with God. And we have God's initiative and our response. Both are important. But in this text in Colossians, it seems that baptism is linked more with God's activity than it is with the human response. Uh, In fact, the human person in this text in Colossians, remember, is described as being dead. Uh, What are dead people capable of? Uh, If somebody is considered dead, uh, we know that the dead don't initiate relationships. They don't seek things. uh, They don't reach out. They don't obey. Dead people are dead, and they're incapable of these actions. And and what Paul is saying is, uh, as a dead person, you remain incapable of these actions until God undertakes the spiritual procedure uh, that in some translations uh, is called a heart circumcision. A heart circumcision that removes this old dead nature and new life becomes possible. And the outward sign, the, the visible sign of what God is doing inwardly, circumcising the heart, this outward sign is baptism. Uh, Colossians, uh, the text also links for us the idea of circumcision and baptism. Uh, and this is a helpful connection. Uh, so what was circumcision, right? Everybody... Take a minute. Just get in your head. What was circumcision? You don't have to say it out loud. right? Don't gesture. No gestures. Circumcision, right? Now, I'm not thinking so much about what was circumcision, but what does it stand for? What, what was the purpose of circumcision? What did it do? What was the function of that, that procedure? And uh, the, what we know about circumcision from the Hebrew Scriptures is that it was also the outward, visible sign of God's promise to a specific people. Uh, Circumcision is this constant reminder to the whole community that God had made promises to them. And the idea of circumcision goes all the way back uh, at least to Genesis 17. If you have your Bibles open yet, uh, flip back to Genesis 17. This goes all the way back to the person of Abraham. And there's this conversation that God has with Abraham. Actually, it's Abram at the beginning of the conversation. And God begins the conversation, and he says, uh, I am, God, did you hear the language here? God begins the conversation. God initiates the relationship. He says, I'm picking you out of the the clear blue, and I am going to do this for you, Abram. I'm going to make you uh, the father of a great nation. In fact, not just a nation, uh, but many, many nations. Uh, Your descendants will be innumerable. And I'm going to commit myself uh, to bringing this to pass. And then he says in Genesis 17, verse 10, And this is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. Uh, The flesh of his foreskin must be cut off, and this will be a sign that you and they have accepted this covenant. And every male child must be circumcised by the eighth day after his birth. Um, This applies not only to members of your family, but also to servants born in your household, the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased, and uh, all must be circumcised. And so your bodies will bear the mark of my covenant. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. So God comes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you this great nation. And here is the mark that seals that promise. Here's the, here's the, here's the visible reminder. Here's the visible manifestation of that work. It's an outward visible sign of God's promise to a specific people. And he's saying, I will be your God. I, will, I, have a, I have a future for you. 
I am going to be at work on your behalf, and I'm going to bring all of the resources of heaven to bear. I'm going to be your saving God. I will always be with you. I will always walk with you. And the sign of this promise, the way that you will remember that, the way that you will just drive that reality, drive that promise, drive that that worldview into your bones is the sign of circumcision. And so babies at eight days old are circumcised to show that they already belong. Before they can even respond, they belong to this family of promise. And the fancy biblical term for when God makes a binding promise like that is covenant. When God makes a binding promise like that and then seals it, that's a covenant. And now, through Jesus, we read in Colossians, that baptism is the sign of God's new covenant promise. Because what God is doing in Jesus is expanding the family of Abraham. He's expanding the family of Abraham beyond the genetic line to include everybody who has faith in Jesus. So you are baptized into God's family promise. Uh, And that is not just found here in Colossians, but we also read that in Galatians. Remember what we read in Galatians 3.29. Paul wrote there, you are the true children of Abraham. Remember that? You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And now all of the promises that God gave to him belong to you. I will be your God. I will fight on your behalf. You will always belong to me. Nothing will come between us. It's the covenant that God makes in Jesus. And this language of new covenant takes us to the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Uh, In our text in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Uh, we were invited to think about the Lord's table as a uh, place where the new covenant is enacted. The new covenant between God and God's people. And that new covenant now is not sealed by the water of baptism, but Jesus says this new covenant will be sealed by the blood which is shed and poured out into the cup. And these new promises are also connected to the Old uh, Testament scriptures. Uh, If you look back in Jeremiah 31, uh, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is the book right after Isaiah, uh, God talks about the very thing that Jesus is doing in this text. This is what he says. The day will come, Jeremiah 31, 31, the day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, a new covenant. And this covenant will not be like the ones I made with their ancestors, where I took them by the hand and brought them up out of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The new covenant that God makes in the blood of Jesus, accomplishes that reality. Jeremiah is looking forward to a day when God would finally bring his people back from captivity. And not only would he bring them back from captivity, but he would also remove from them all of the brokenness and all of the rebellion and everything in them that had brought about their captivity in the first place. 
And so what I want you to hear is that both the sacraments are covenantal. That is, they both point to God's promises. They both remind us of God's promises. They both, points to, to, they both point to God's initiative in making his promise with his people, his grace to welcome me into his family. Number two, sacraments uh, are not so much focused on my response, but they're on God's initiative to make his covenant promises. Uh, it's, they're focused on God's offered grace of inclusion, on God's covenant. But the sacraments are not merely memorials. They're not just visual aids. They aren't just a different learning technique for people who like multisensory learning experiences. Uh, what we also believe about the sacraments in addition to there being covenantal promises of God, is that when we participate in the sacraments, something happens. They are a means of grace. God's grace comes to us in a mysterious way in the sacrament. Look again at the language of Galatians 3. All who have been baptized are made like him. And then later, you are one in Christ Jesus. And the idea here is that in a mysterious way, God's grace is present doing what needs to happen in order for you and me to be made like Jesus. It's God's grace that accomplishes that. And God is doing in that work what needs to happen in order for us to stand together in unity as a family, where we not only belong to him in Christ Jesus, but we also belong to one another. God is at work keeping the very promises that he's making in the sacrament. When we participate in the sacrament, God is at work keeping the very promises that he's making in the sacrament. Something happens. Participate in the, participating in the sacrament at the very least, says Paul in Galatians, changes your basic identity. When you eat that bread, when you drink that cup, when that water hits your head, your identity is changed. Your identity is shifted, and it's no longer determined by your socioeconomic status. It isn't about your family background. It isn't about your education. It isn't about your race. It isn't about your preferences. It isn't about anything else. He says none of those distinctions matter anymore. When you participate in the sacrament, your identity shifts and your primary identity, who you are, is a person who belongs to God and who stands in unity with God's family. That becomes who you are. Something happens. I love the way that John Calvin talks about the Lord's Supper. He reflects on the idea that Jesus says, this is my body, and he says, that as bread nourishes, sustains, and keeps the life of our body, so Christ's body is the only food to invigorate and enliven our soul. And when we see wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must reflect on the benefits which wine imparts to the body. See, he was ahead of his time. And so realize that they are the same spiritually, imparted to us by Christ's blood. These benefits are to nourish refresh, strengthen, and gladden. And then he goes on and he says, if the bread that you eat and the cup that you drink, if the water of baptism 
if it is a symbol, and God is promising that that symbol stands for something, then Calvin says, if you receive the symbol, you can be assured that God is also giving you the real thing. In other words, if you take the symbol of Christ's body, Christ's body is also promised for you. And so every time you break the bread and every time you drink the cup, we're being driven back to the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And we're reminded again and again and again. And we receive over and over and over God's grace for us. It's a real transaction. Real grace is expressed and given. And so for Calvin, what he says is, when you come to the table, you know, sometimes in churches there are debates about what happens to the bread or what happens to the juice. Does it become literally, actually, when Jesus says, this is my body, does he mean that it becomes the, the body? What happens uh, to, the, to the elements? And other times um, we say things like, it's just a, it's just a uh, memory device. It just helps us to visualize what was happening. And Calvin said, neither one of those is really satisfying. Uh, it, it isn't just a, a memory device because something sacramental, something mysterious happens. We really experience the grace of uh, the body of Jesus given for us. But at the same time, he said, the focus isn't on how does the bread change. For Calvin, the focus is on how do I change? How am I different? How am I nourished? How am I sustained? How do I respond to the grace that God has given to me? In both sacraments, God is doing the thing that he promises. He is showing up with the grace to accomplish the very things that the symbols point to. A number of years ago, I came across a sermon that describes what would be the celebrative side of communion in this context of worship. And this is what he says. The preacher says, maybe some morning, instead of solemnly passing these trays, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold up our little cups high to toast lost sisters found in dead brothers alive. What other response would one have to grace? Something happens. So the sacraments are God's initiative. They are markers of God's covenant promises to his people. God's lasting promise relationships. The invitation into his family promise. And when we receive the marker of that promise, we're also receiving the grace of God who is keeping the promises that he's pointing to. And so finally, number three, there's a response. Yes, there's always a response. A relationship demands not only God's initiative, not only God's overture, not only God's promise, but also our response to that. I came across the thoughts of a former army ranger as he reflected on the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, after describing the opening scene of the movie, he says, the story uh, begins when this um, ranger group receives a mission to go deep into enemy territory to save Private Ryan. They hit skirmish after skirmish, and some of them are killed along the way, and they finally get to where Private Ryan is holed up, and they say, come on, come with us. We're going to save you. We're bringing you home. And 
this, this is so frustrating, right? Uh, what does Private Ryan say at that point? He says, I can't go. There's this big battle coming, and this bridge is really important. If I, if I abandon my buddies now, they'll die. I have to stay, and I have to fight. I can't leave my friends. And so what did the rangers say? They say, well, we'll stay then too. We'll fight alongside of you. And they do, and they stay, and they fight. And it's a gruesome fight, and it's hard, and it's terrible. And almost everyone dies, except for Private Ryan. And at the end, uh, one of the main characters, Tom Hanks, is sitting on the ground, and Tom Hanks has been shot, and he's dying, but the battle has been won. And you remember the scene when Tom Hanks pulls Private Ryan in, and he whispers something to him? And this army ranger says, at this point in the movie, right, if you remember back, way back when it came out, and you're sitting in the theater, everybody in the theater is crying, because Tom Hanks is dying up on the screen. It was terrible. And this ranger says, I was crying too, but for a different reason. I was crying for a different reason. I was, I was crying because what he said was so terrible. It was so awful. What did he say? Do you remember what he said? Earn this. Earn this. Why was that so terrible? He says, because the ranger motto for the last 200 years has not been earned this. The ranger motto for the last 200 years has been sua sponte. I choose this. I volunteered for this. If Tom Hanks had really been a ranger, he would not have said earn this. He would have said sua sponte. I choose this. This is free. You don't have to pay anything for this. I've given up my life for you because that's my job. And so when you look at the cross and you see Jesus hanging there, what do you not hear? Jesus never says, earn this. He says, sua sponte. He says, I've chosen this. It's given freely for you. This is a gift. This is grace. I volunteer to pay everything on your behalf. If the response to God's initiative is not, I have to earn this, what is it? It's gratitude. The response is never, can I live up to this? Can I live under the pressure? Is it enough what I've done? Am I good enough? Am I trying hard enough? Am I working uh, close enough? Have I ever done enough to earn it? Jesus never says earn it. The response is to receive with gratitude, with joy, with humility, the gift that has been freely chosen and freely offered for you. And then to participate in a community of people, God's covenant people, fellow recipients of God's promise, who are also filled with gratitude and have nothing left to prove or to earn or to deserve. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's that lapse of gratitude. It's that lapse of generosity. It's that lapse of humility where the powerful are still proving how powerful they are and coming and eating everything up first before the poor arrive, who, 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 haven't, who haven't figured out that they have nothing left to prove, that they have nothing to offer but gratitude. 
It's that lapse of gratitude. It's that lapse of humility that actually does violence and betrays the sacrament. So what do we believe about the sacraments? What we believe is that God initiates a promise to us. God initiates a promise to us and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and there is nothing that you will do that will tear you out of my hands. That when we receive the sacraments, we receive not only the promise, but the grace that is actually fulfilling the the reality of that promise in our life. And when we receive the sacraments, we believe that we're called to respond to the grace that we find there with gratitude, with humility, and with joy. Because, after all, the sacraments are a mystery. And we find Jesus there. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, sometimes this is a a difficult challenge for us to simply let you initiate, to let you lead, to let you call, to let you begin. We're so hardwired to take charge, to know what's best, to earn and to deserve. And Lord, thank you for the, the grace of the sacraments that come over and over and over again to bring us to that place of recognizing that you are our God, that you come making tremendous promises to include us among your people, that you bring along with you the grace that nourishes us and sustains us and actually helps us to become one of your people, to resemble you. And Lord, help us just to live out of a simple sense of joyful gratitude for that. Help us to recognize the places in our lives where we're motivated by some need to perform or to earn or to deserve, to impress, to show off our status, to climb the ladder, to recognize that all of that just falls away in the face of your grace. Thank you for freely choosing to love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.